0: Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we have just sung of Jesus, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the source of life and security and the one that we need. And so we pray, Lord, that during this time in your word, we would get more Jesus. And it's in his perfect name we pray. Amen. So I want to start this week by telling you a story that it's one of those stories that it's so terrible but it's great. Okay, um, <clears throat> comes from a pastor friend of mine who has shared that early on in his ministry he was at a church where he was like the pastor of discipleship, and so one of his jobs was to coordinate the adult Sunday school. and And one week this guy comes to him and says, "Hey, I've got a really good idea for what we should do with our adult Sunday school class this semester. Let's study this topic." And my pastor friend kind of looked at him, and inwardly he's thinking. That's one of the worst ideas I've ever heard, okay? And so he says, well, you know, thanks for the suggestion, you know, we'll see, but we're probably not going to go in that direction this semester. Well, next semester rolls around, and the guy shows up with, like, an even worse idea, okay? And he says to my pastor friend, hey, we should study this, this semester, and my pastor friend's like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. He tries to kind of pastorally love him through it, but the, the guy is really upset that he's brought up two suggestions, and they've both been rejected, So the next time my pastor friend is preaching, and he's an assistant pastor at the church, so he doesn't preach all that often, but the next time he is preaching, he gets up to preach. And as he gets up there, the the guy who had brought these suggestions comes marching down the middle aisle, and he sits in the very front row. And as soon as he gets up to preach, he pulls out a newspaper, and he opens it up, and he keeps it there for the entire sermon. (laughs) isn 't that great like <laughs> this is such a gutsy move. I can, I can hardly even believe it and my, my pastor friend that I would not have the personal maturity to deal with that, you know like there would be a throwdown in the middle of you, and I would lose my church, and you would lose some teeth, and it would be a really nasty, nasty situation i don 't know how my friend managed to kind of preach grace uh, through that, but, but through it he did now why do I tell you that story? Um, that terrible story so terrible it's great because it's the perfect perfect illustration of exactly what our passage tells us not to do our passage is a section in the bible that teaches us about the bible and the overall thrust is really that we should receive this word this living active vibrant word that has all kinds of power to bring transformation with with a meek and teachable spirit And yet, how often when we come to the Bible do we open the newspaper of our hearts? Now here's the thing, you and I are perhaps wise enough, perhaps fear man enough not to come and actually sit in the front pew, but how often do we do that inwardly? Having a hard heart to the Word of God when it's being taught, when it's being preached, when it's being read, when it's brought to mind when we're in the midst of a particular situation. And this passage is going to tell us that when we do that, when we open up the broadsheets of our hearts, we're really doing nothing but self-sabotage. Because there is life in this book for us. Life for me this morning. Life for you this morning. Two things it teaches us, two categories in which we can think about uh, its teaching this morning. The first thing we're going to see is that uh, the Word saves us. The Word saves us because it points us toward the gospel. The second thing we see in our text is that not only does the word save us, but the word also sanctifies us. It is the power not just that brings us into a relationship with God, but it is then the power that um, enables us to follow God, enables us to live with a kind of joyful obedience. How is it able to do this? Again, because it points us to the gospel. The word saves and sanctifies because it points us toward the gospel. Let's look at the first of these things together and open up your Bible with me. As we think about this idea that it's the word that saves. We really see this teaching in verse 18, but let's back up to verse 16 that we first read. He opens, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Don't be deceived, he said. This word is a word that can mean to be lured away, to be enticed, to be seduced. Don't be seduced into thinking, he says, that all your gifts have come from anywhere but from the Lord himself. And what a good word that is to us all. It's a refrain that you've heard me say before and that we'll say again and again as we try to live into it. But the the reality that so many of us think we hit a triple when we were really born on third base. This reality that we are easily seduced easily enticed, easily deceived into thinking that all the blessings that we have in our lives are somehow the result of our own work ethic, our own intelligence, our own genius or brilliance. And James says, (laughs) don't be so seduced. Don't be so fooled, he says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Every good gift, he says. So those significant things in your life, perhaps it's your spouse or your family or your children or that job or uh, those meaningful relationships or, uh, you know, those big ticket items like your your home. All these large things have, have come to you by the grace of God. And not just the big things, but every good gift. So the small things too. That warm shower this morning, that cup of coffee, that were it not coursing through your veins right now, you might have unintentionally have the newspaper of your heart <laughs> <laughs> open wide. The small things, um, the unnecessary things that the Lord gives us—the um, fact that clouds make fun shapes that you can look at with your kids, the fact that it's enjoyable to step out on a sunny morning—from the big things to the small things, the unnecessary things. Every good gift we have has come from God. And not just every good gift, but we read every perfect gift. You see it there? A perfect gift isn't just sort of repeating itself, it's getting at the idea that some gifts are just particularly fitting, some gifts are just particularly appropriate for you or for me so uh, Rosie my wife one of her love languages is uh, gifts given and so she is uh, really blessed when you get her a gift but she's also really good at buying other people gifts, she's really thoughtful and kind of knows to get you exactly what you want and I may have shared before but she gets you something and you open it and you've never heard of it in your life but you suddenly think I've always wanted one of these, <laughs> I've always was just like this is perfect, this is the exact thing that I should have known to want, mm-hmm. right And that's the way the Lord is with us. He gives us all our good gifts, but he also gives you the perfect gift. He knows you. He knit you together when back in your mother's womb and has had his protective hand on you ever since. And so he knows what you need and he'll he'll bless you with that in time. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, we read. From above, from God. Coming down... Look in verse 17, from the Father of light, the one who created the sun and created the moon and created the stars and created all uh, the heavenly beings. And this God who created these things, in him there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is consistent in his generosity. He is the God who uh, is not somehow uh, sort of capricious in the way in which he deals with his children. You can rely on his goodness toward you. This is the kind of giving God that we have. And before moving to our main point, it is worth pausing and just, just to, to note a point of application that it's very significant for us to learn how to connect the dots from the blessings we have received to the goodness of his hand. You know when you read, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do to alter the glory of God, and you think, you know, how do I drink a cup of coffee to God's glory? You know, how do you, how do, you do that? And the answer is by connecting the dots to his hand. That as you walk through your life and as you experience and are blessed by the multitude of good things that he has given you, you pause to remember where they came from. And so you pour that cup of coffee and you say, Jesus, thank you for caffeine. Praise the Lord, right? You stop as you sit around the fire with your kids and you say, Lord, what a blessing this moment is. I'm going to drink coffee, I'm going to sit around a fire to your glory, because I'm going to connect the dots from my experience to your hand. That's how we eat, drink, or do whatever we do to God's glory. We connect the dots. But let's look at the main point then, the point that it's the word that saves. We get this in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He begins of his own will, which is really directing us toward this reformed understanding of salvation, that it has come to us by the initiative of God. He says, every good thing you have, every perfect thing you have is from God. And do you think your salvation is any different? Do you think that he gave you all those things, but you've somehow worked this thing yourself? No, it has come, how? By his own will, by his gracious initiative to reach out to us. By this gracious initiative, we read, he has brought us forth. This is the phrase for, for the new birth. We have been born again. He has taken things that were dead and made them alive in Christ. That we should be what? A kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, city people like myself find this picture hard to understand, but think of the first fruits of the harvest, which were always given exclusively as an offering to God. And so now we are reading that Christians are like the first fruits of humanity, those who have given their lives now exclusively to God. He's talking about uh, his, his saving initiative, the new birth he's given, the fact that we are now exclusively God's. He's talking about the fact that he has taken a people who are on the path to hell and brought them into a relationship with himself so that they might experience the glories of grace in this life and the glory of eternity in heaven to come. And how did all this happen? Look there, verse 18. How did he do all this? By the word of truth. A phrase that refers to the Bible in general. It refers to the gospel specifically. We know this from Ephesians chapter 1. This idea that he has accomplished this saving work through the power of his word, the Bible. Now, I wonder how quick we are to forget about the power that is in this book. My favorite illustration comes from Jesus. Look with me in, verse, uh, in Luke chapter 16. Here's Jesus' story, his illustration to try and communicate the power of the Bible. It's the story of the rich man and and Lazarus. Do you remember? There's a rich man who is clothed in royal robes of purple and he feasts at this great banquet table. Now sitting at his gate is this poor man who is clothed not in purple but with sores and the dogs come and lick at his sores and he is pleased to eat even the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. Well, the time comes that they both die and uh, Lazarus, this poor man, is taken to Abraham's side in the glory of heaven itself. The rich man dies and is sent to a lost eternity, to, to hell itself. And then Jesus plays out this conversation that takes place between hell and heaven. The rich man looks up, and he sees Lazarus, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, is there any way that you would send Lazarus just to dip his finger in water and place it on my tongue that I might experience some relief from the suffering and torment that I am enduring? And Abraham says, no, this is not possible. First of all, you never paid this poor man any attention in his lifetime. And now there is this great divide that separates the two. Well, okay, Abraham. Okay, Abraham, the rich man says. If he cannot come and help me, at least send him to go to see my relatives, to see my friends, to see my loved ones and warn them about what has happened to me so that they will turn and repent and not end up in the same place that I did. And do you remember how Abraham responds to that? It's the very last verse of chapter 16. You remember what he says? Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If they don't believe Abraham and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Think about the power of this illustration. And it's an illustration so powerful that I wouldn't use it had Jesus not. It would seem like an overreach were this, was this not Jesus's illustration. How impressed would you be if you saw a resurrection this morning? You know, we, we wheel someone down in the aisle here, and we open the casket, and we do some sort of focus pocus, and they sit up and live. What impact would that have on you this morning? I'm thinking that would be quite impactful. I'm thinking you'd remember this Sunday. You know, remember that Sunday you raised from the dead? don't even remember that. That was a big deal. You know, like, that, that's not going to be one of those weeks you forget, right? And Jesus is saying, the power of that isn't as compelling, isn't as persuasive, isn't as convincing as the spirit working through his word. In other words, he's saying that when the spirit is at work in your heart and takes the truths that are here and seals them and applies them to your heart, that is more persuasive than if you saw someone rising from the dead. That's the kind of power that is in this book. It's not just a dusty collection of words and how often we treat it that way. Bibles scattered all over the house collecting dust and you know uh, various apps on our smartphone that we can look at the Bible in all kinds of different translations and, and we, we forget the power that is in these pages. Power more convincing than even seeing someone rise from the dead. Three very quick applications on this, on this first point. The first one is this. Salvation comes through the word and this helps us understand how you become a Christian. And if you've been attending this church and you've been feeling a sort of, uh, some sort of connection to the truth of the gospel, I want to kind of explain from the Bible's perspective what may be happening there. The Bible says in one place, Romans chapter 10 verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, we're saved as we are interacting with the scripture. How does that work? It works as the words go from the page to my eyes and they go from my eyes to my lips and from my lips to your ears and then one of two things happen. It either it goes in one ear and straight out the other ear or by the power of the spirit, it goes from your ear deep into your soul and you believe it. That if you are feeling a tug to believe the things of the gospel, understand, understand what's happening. God is working within you to convince you that these things are true as they are, and so don't write it off as some emotional experience. don't write it off as being you know up too late one night. Recognize that the Spirit of God may be calling you to commit to the things that he's enabling you to believe are true. The second quick application is that if you're not at that stage, if you've been attending but you haven't felt that particular draw yet, I want to encourage you that there's nothing more important you could do than read the Bible. Now, it doesn't sound sort of, you'd think I'd have a better answer, you know, or a more interesting answer, but you really need to understand, (laughs) you know, you don't need to hear from me. I have nothing for you. Apart from what's in here. Um, You know, Even things like go to Christianity Explored. Yeah, go to Christianity Explored. But do you know why? Because they're going to read through this. The the best thing you can do for your soul's sake isn't read some clever argument, isn't pursue some new program. It's to take some time to read the scriptures. My wife and I, through um, separate experiences, were both brought to a place by the Lord where we both came to faith. We were both... Converted on the spot as we read sections of the scripture. Me in Mark chapter 8, Rosie in Romans 6. She's Roman, she's smarter than me, right? <laughs> the word has that kind of power. And if you're exploring these things, I just encourage you re- read the Bible. Read the Bible. Third quick application point is um, if you are a believer, if you do believe these things, and if you're interacting with people who are interested in Christianity, the best thing you can do for them is to read the Bible with them. Don't feel the insecurity and don't feel the angst and the doubt of, well, will I have answers to their questions? Maybe, maybe not. Don't feel the, uh, the, the sort of insecurity and, and the doubt of, uh, you know, will I know exactly what to say at the right time? Maybe, maybe not. The reality is the power for evangelism comes in exposing people to the word. And if I can say this sort of respectfully, understand that neither they nor you have any idea what they're getting themselves into when they open this book. Because we approach it like it's a book when actually... It's the living, active word of God more compelling than seeing someone rise from the dead. And so you can do no better thing for your lost friends, your lost relatives, than, than bring them to the word. The word saves because it teaches us the gospel. The second thing though, I want to see in this passage is how the word also sanctifies. What is sanctification? It's the process where we become more holy, the process where we become more like Jesus, the process whereby we become more like what we were intended to be in Eden and more like what we will be for eternity. It's the process wherein we become the full potential of what God created us to be in his image and then in Christ. It's how we live Christian lives with any sense of joy and with any sense of obedience. And this passage teaches us that we do that by the word. See, I don't know how you felt as we read this section, but let me read some of it again. Verse 19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Verse 21, put away all filthiness and wickedness. Verse 21 again, receive the word with meekness. Verse 22, be doers of the word. Verse 26, bridle your tongue. Verse 27, visit orphans and widows. Verse 27 again, be unstained from the world. When you hear these commands, how, how do you feel? See, t- to be honest, I feel two things that I, th- I think a lot of us do. On, on the one hand, <laughs> I feel despair. Because I get this picture of what the Christian life ought to look like and I just know it doesn't really describe me it doesn't really describe me and I, I've got to be honest this was a really convicting week for me to study this text because it has to do with uh, has a lot to do with the tongue and how you use your words and that's convicting for me because I'm a preacher so you know, words are sort of kind of my thing okay, and I love words but it means I can also use words in quite a devastating fashion and I can be quick with a harsh word it just rolls off my tongue I'm not so much the guy who, you know, you know, when you play back the argument in your head and you wish you'd said something, right? right? I'm more the guy who plays back the argument in his head and wish he hadn't said something, you know? This is challenging, convicting to me. As I think about the things that we're commanded to do, it's just, it just doesn't seem to match who I am. And then on the other hand, we swing from despair over to denial, where we open up these pages and we think of all the people who really need to hear this, Okay? So my wife, she really needs to hear, be quick to hear, right? Um, And, you know, other times be slow to speak and slow to anger. And -and so-and-so, if you hear what they did, they last did, they really need to learn to put away wickedness and filthiness. And -and so-and-so needs to learn to bridle his tongue and they're not as generous as I and so on, so on, so forth. Living in this sort of sense of denial as if this word was not primarily addressed to you. And so as sinful people in this world, we swing between despair and and denial, and neither is the gospel place to be. I want to just share, in the moments that are left, the relief that came to my soul when I understood from this text how the gospel is the way out from that kind of living. The gospel itself is the way out from that kind of living. Look with me at, at verses 23 and 24. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I used to read that section as almost like a rebuke. You know all these things that you're meant to do. Be you know quick to listen, slow to speak. You know all these things that you're meant to do and you just don't do them. You're like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and just goes away and forgets about it. And that's just what you're like. You're just that kind of person who, who never follows through on, on what it is you're meant to do. You should, you know, feel bad about yourself. <laughs> and then studying this week, I realized, that's actually not what it says. <laughs> it doesn't say, it's like a man who has a to-do list and forgets to do it. It says, it's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and forgets what he looks like. Gospel principle for living. The Bible Always tells you who you are before it tells you what to do. The gospel always tells you who you are before it tells you what to do. In the gospel, the indicative that who you are in Christ always comes before the imperative what you ought to do for Christ. Being who He has created you to be comes before doing what it is that He wants you to perform. This is the gospel pattern that is clear throughout all of scriptures and again for us here in this text. Why? Because we're called to hold up the word like a mirror and not see a list of things that we have neglected to do, but see in that mirror who it is that we are. And what do we behold when we look in that mirror? We see ourselves as moral failures who are greatly loved. That's what this mirror shows us. Yes, the mirror of the Bible shows us our sin. It shows us our brokenness. It shows us the reality that we are not those people that the Lord has created us to be. And that's just for me a fact about the way I am and a fact for you about the way that you are. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to speak of the reality of grace and the reality of the gospel that in this mirror we see, yes, our sin, but we also see a Father who loves us and a Son who sacrifices for us and a Spirit who empowers us to follow in joyful obedience. We look in this mirror and we see, yes, moral failures, but we see that we are greatly loved. We see that we have failed, but we see that He has succeeded. We see that we have failed, but we see that He is victorious. That our identity is not controlled by the things that we have done, but controlled by the things that Christ has done for us. So, as we behold ourselves in a mirror, we're reminded that the gospel always tells us who we are before it tells us what to do. How does that work out practically? Well, do you not see the powerful difference that that makes to living the Christian life? Be quick to hear. When you behold yourself in the gospel mirror and you see yourself in all your brokenness and see yourself as someone who's just deeply loved, you, you start to think, maybe what the world needs right now isn't my opinion. Maybe I need to be engaging with what they have to say and I'm learning from that. Be slow to speak the same way. Slow to anger. When you see yourself in this gospel mirror and you see your brokenness and yet how much you're loved, that radically transforms how you respond to people that you would ordinarily have been angry with. Because the big plank in your eye stops you from being angry about the speck that's in theirs. This gospel identity empowers you to do the things we're called to do. We could go through each of the commands. Let's look at just a couple more. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This is that call to be generous and concerned for those when they find themselves in need. And when you behold yourself in the gospel mirror and you see that in your great poverty and in your great need, Christ came to be generous beyond generosity and give you all that you could have asked for, how does that not change the way you think about interacting with others when they are in need? Beholding yourself in the mirror changes the way that you feel. There's lots more to say. Time is up. We're saved by the word We're sanctified by the word. Why? Because both show us the gospel. In these pages we find power and in these pages we find a mirror, a mirror of grace that teaches us to follow his commands as moral failures who are deeply loved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your scriptures and as we reflect upon them, it makes perfect sense that James would call them, in verse 25, the, the law of liberty. For surely this is not a book that is just a crushing weight of rules and regulations to highlight our inability to follow you. Instead, Lord, it is a mirror that, yes, of course, shows us our sin, sin shows us reality, but goes further to whisper grace, enabling us to walk in freedom, free from anger, free from selfishness, living the kind of lives that you have called us to in Christ. We give you praise and honor and glory for this book, and we worship you as as its author. We pray it in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.